Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Van Maren Show. My name is Jonathan Van Maren, and today we're going to be talking to my friend, Dr. Michael New. I've known him for more than 10 years. Some of you will recognize him because he's been on the podcast quite a few times. He's an American political scientist, a visiting associate professor at the Catholic University of America, and an associate scholar with the Charlotte Lose Institute. He is also America's premier pro-life statistician, and he works with all of the most recent pro-life and abortion data to take a look at what's going on and to give the pro-life movement a sense of of where we're at. And I wanted to talk to him because I've wanted to do a, a, a sort of Dobbs one year later show for a bit, but I wanted to talk to somebody who could give the sort of bird's eye macro picture. We've talked to a lot of activists on this show uh, over the years because that's sort of where I come from in the movement. We're street level outreach, but we also rely heavily on data to make sure that our street outreach is having a macro impact. And Dr. Mike Michael New is the premier expert on breaking down all the data and explaining exactly where we're at. And so to talk about post-Roe America, post-Dobbs America, here is my interview with Dr. Michael New. All right, Dr. New, it's been a little while since we talked, and every time we do, we always dive into the numbers because we are now over a year uh, into a post-Roe, a post-Dobbs America. From where you're sitting with the research you're doing, what has been the effect of the overturn of Roe v. Wade, and where do we sit, roughly speaking? Sure. I mean, the overturn of Roe v. Wade has finally allowed states to enact protections for pre-born children. Right now, there's 15 states where preborn children are protected from all stages of gestation. Another seven states have gestational age limits in effect. So you have about 22 states that are doing something to protect preborn children. And I think the good data we have shows that these laws are having some effect. Uh, there's the We Count Project, which is run by the Society for Family Planning. Uh, they've done estimates every few months or so. Uh, their estimates have fluctuated, but consistently they show that the pro-life laws have been passed since Dobbs are saving tens of thousands of lives. So that's a good development. I think the most exciting data we have comes from Texas. Uh, Texas actually was enacting a heartbeat act as of September 1st, 2021. That was before dogs. It had a, a unique enforcement mechanism that made it hard to sue and made it hard to strike down. Uh, starting around March of 2022, seven, eight months later, we see an increase in births in Texas. Uh, my Lotion Suit study Another study that appeared in the Journal of the American Medical Association both found that the Texas Heartbeat Act is resulting in a thousand more births every month. So it's saving a thousand lives every month because uh, of that good, strong pro-life law the Texas legislature passed, signed into law by Governor Greg Abbott. So those are good data points that uh, that we have suggesting the pro-life laws we have passed since Dobbs are in fact saving tens of thousands of lives. Now you probably want me to talk about the Gutbacher data that came out last week. And they came out with some data um, from the first six months of 2023. And they're trying to make the case that abortions have increased since Dobbs. They compared data from the first six months of 2023 to data from the first six months of 2020. And they found about a slightly less than 10% increase in number of abortions performed. But I think that's just very, very misleading for several reasons. Uh, first off, Gubacher did a sample. They didn't do a comprehensive count. They include confidence intervals. In some cases, their projected estimates have a wide variation. Like in Georgia, the upper estimate is like 80% higher than their low estimate, almost twice as much. That's not reliable. In Florida, their high estimate is like 10,000 abortions higher than their low estimate. 
also not reliable. So this is basically a sample, not a complete count. I don't think it's very reliable. I also think it's worth noting that in a lot of blue states, abortion numbers are going up because of permissive policies. Uh, sadly, the past few years, uh, we've seen three states, uh, Illinois, Maine, Rhode Island, they have started to cover uh, elective abortion through the state Medicaid program. That means taxpayers in these states are paying to cover, are paying for abortions, and that means abortions are heavily subsidized or free out of pocket for women on Medicaid. We know from the research, abortions go up when state Medicaid programs cover abortion. Uh, Illinois repealed their pro-life parental involvement law. Massachusetts weakened its pro-life parental involvement law. Uh, and also, we've just seen that the Biden administration has made chemical abortions much more available. We have these pandemic-era policies that allow women to get these dangerous chemical abortion drugs without an in-person medical exam. Foolishly, uh, the Biden administration, FDA, continued that policy even after the pandemic. So essentially, uh, again, up until recently, women who want a chemical abortion could get those drugs uh, without an in-person medical exam. These chemical abortion drugs are failed to onboard children, but also pose some, various, some very serious health risks to women. And again, I think that's playing a role in some of these abortion increases that Guttmacher is, is citing. So if you look at the the abortion increases that Guttmacher is is uh, citing, and just for the listeners who might not know, the Guttmacher Institute is the research arm of Planned Parenthood that does a lot of research into abortion policy and abortion numbers. If blue states where restrictions are being consistently loosened, and and a lot of people will remember when when uh, former New York Governor Andrew Cuomo lit up the Empire State Building uh, in pink to celebrate making abortion legal throughout all nine months of pregnancy. If you have this sort of division in America where you've got a lot of red states now passing pro-life laws that they can actually enforce, but a lot of blue states that are loosening up uh, their laws even further, um, legalizing abortion in the last months of pregnancy, eliminating, uh, as you mentioned, parental consent or parental involvement laws, and basically making it sort of on demand without apology and in many states taxpayer funded. Does this mean that the real number of abortions happening in the United States isn't going down because you see the numbers going up in blue states and down in red states? Or do, would you still say that you're seeing sort of an, a net loss in the abortion rate uh, since since Roe was overturned? You know, I think certainly abortions have gone down. You know, I think that the we count data provided by the Society for Family Planning, they're trying to account of abortions. Kubarker just used a sample. So the we count data consistently has shown tens of thousands of fewer abortions taking place. I mean, keep in mind, there are 15 states, you know, that are protecting all pre-born children. And there's about seven more states that have a good gestational limit in effect. These laws, you know, do have an impact. So, you know, again, laws aren't magical. You know, I don't dispute that some women do circumvent laws by getting abortion in states where the laws are more permissive. I don't dispute that some of the blue state policies are playing a role in increasing abortion numbers in these states. You know, I think that it's tragic that in some cases you have some states even want to use taxpayer dollars to fly women into these states uh, to perform abortions on their children. Uh, but again, I do think that when the good data does come out, we will see abortion numbers going down. Again, I think the birth data from Texas is very solid. You know, if more children are being born, you know, that's very powerful evidence the laws are having an impact. Uh, and again, what I'm also showing from my own research is you see kind of the largest birth rate increases in those Texas counties that are far away state abortion facilities. So again, if a woman can just hop across a border, you know, the law might not have much of an impact. But essentially for those women who, you know, 
are in areas of the country where abortion facilities aren't nearby, those children are being carried to term. So I think that, again, we have just good research that will show that abortion numbers are, in fact, going down, despite some blue states doing their best to thwart pro-life efforts. So um, what would your response to the abortion activist claim that a lot of, say, women in Texas who can't get abortions there are just traveling to surrounding states to get abortion? Because I know you've done research on this and that your um, your analysis that tens of thousands of babies have been saved uh, since the Dobbs decision um, takes into account that reality. Well, essentially, I mean, you know, it's always tricky to kind of gauge the impact of a pro-life law. I mean, right after the Texas Heartbeat Act took effect, we saw a big decline in the number of abortions performed in state. Now, the question was, you know, obviously, does to what extent does any out-of-state increase offset this in-state decline? And the problem is getting out-of-state numbers is tricky. You know, that abortion reporting standards are pretty weak. You know, not all states report data. Those that do report data don't report reliable data on women coming in from other states. So it's kind of, you know, questions about, you know, does this in-state decline, what extent is it offset by the out-of-state increase? The one thing that I think I've done and the Journal of the American Medical Association did that was wise is just look at births. You know, essentially that if more children are being born, uh, more pregnancies are being carried to term, I think this is very solid statistical evidence that the laws are having an impact. You know, that again, uh, you know, abortions are hard to count. Births are easy to count. It's hard to miss children being born. So if there is a, a, a real increase in the birth rate, which there has been in Texas, again, Texas had the largest percentage birth rate increase of any state in 2022. Again, they are the first state to really take the lead and enforce a strong pro-life law. I think the birth data is very rigorous, very sound, and just does show pretty clearly that the Texas laws are having an impact. So if we look at the situation more broadly, right now it's September. So we so Dobbs has been in effect and Roe has been dead for just over a year. But if we look at uh, a couple of different things. Um, one of the things that I think would be important to look at would be the, the direct democracy referendums. So you wrote an article in, in, in National Review, and I wrote an article in First Things, taking a look at what happened in Michigan. We, I've already discussed that on this podcast with others. But you also have Kentucky, Montana, and now, of course, you've got that looming vote in Ohio. I just spoke to our mutual friend, Mark Harrington, uh, on this podcast about that. You look at a lot of I look at this from a very activist perspective, which is, you know, how do we how do we change hearts and minds on this issue on the ground? What kind of outreach and activism is most effective? You look at this from from the perspective of numbers. So from your perspective, why is it that that the abortion activists have won the last couple of referendums? The Montana one especially is really weird to me. Um, And what do you think the pro-life movement should be doing going forward, especially because you advise some of these groups? Right. I mean, ballot propositions are just kind of the latest challenge we're facing. And I try to take a long view of things. I mean, if you look at the history of the pro-life movement, we faced a lot of challenges over the past 50 years. I mean, there was a point in time where we couldn't get the Supreme Court to uphold even a pro-life parental involvement law. You know, that's what we were up against. You know, in the 70s, you know, pro-life parental involvement laws were struck down. You know, we couldn't always get Republican presidential candidates to, or Republican presidents, I should say, to nominate strong constitutionalist conservative Supreme Court judges. You know, now we're getting much better judicial nominees from our Republican presidents. So there's a lot of obstacles where we've had to overcome um, these ballot propositions. It's the latest obstacle. Uh, why are we having some trouble? Uh, a lot of it, I think, is just simply due to money. 
that you know, there's a good body of research showing that money plays a big role in who wins, and the other side has more money than we do. Abortion is a multi-million dollar industry in this country. Uh, they can often outspend us. You know, the media in many of these, um, you know, elections does us no favors. You know, I think that uh, they don't really give our experts, our point of view, uh, the attention they deserve. That said, you know, I still think that Ohio is winnable. You know, I think Ohio is a more conservative state than Michigan. You know, I do think we made a big investment in Michigan uh, to try to win that one. Uh, we didn't succeed. We did make up some ground in the polls. You know, opposition to that ballot proposition was polling in the mid-20s and reached kind of 43% by election day. So we made up like 17, 18 percentage points in a relatively short amount of time. You know, I think the parental rights arguments, you know, are powerful. I think that will resonate well with people. The one argument that I think is our strongest, and I'm really encouraging our pro-lifers to make it, is calling this Ohio ballot proposition an abortion tax increase. Uh, I think there's a very good chance if this does pass, the Ohio Medicaid program will be required to cover elective abortions so that means that hardworking Ohio taxpayers will be paying for elective abortions through their taxes. And I think just dubbing this the abortion tax increase, I think, is a very strong argument. Uh, opposition to taxpayer funding of abortion is very strong. And again, I think we have some punches to throw here. I don't think we're doomed in Ohio. It's not going to be easy. You know, the other side really wants to win this one. They'd like to notch a victory in a red state. Uh, Ohio is a state that, you know, President Trump carried twice and typically does elect a lot of Republicans to statewide office as a Republican-controlled state legislature. Uh, but again, I think that this is still winnable for us. What advice would you have uh, to the pro-lifers who are putting boots on the ground right now then? If you say it's winnable, um, which I agree with, uh, for all the reasons you've listed and, and a few more, what would you say pro-lifers should be doing in the lead-up to the referendum? I mean, a lot of it is just going to be a lot of shoe leather, a lot of door knocking, you know, that I think that we really need to turn out our people. You know, I think that TV ads are certainly important and radio ads are important, uh, but I think this is just going to require a lot of canvassing, you know, a lot of kind of reaching out to people who may not always be inclined to vote in these sorts of special elections and really making sure they do, in fact, turn out. And I think that, you know, groups are there. I mean, we have groups like Leadership Institute and Susan B. Anthony, Pro-Life America, that are on the ground with canvassers. You know, I think that will have an impact. Again, I would kind of highlight, uh, you know, the negatives of this that are broadly opposed. Uh, I think this effectively does legalize abortion throughout all nine months of pregnancy. I think this does jeopardize Ohio's pro-life parental involvement law. Uh, I think this will require uh, the Ohio Medicaid program to start paying for abortions. Um, and that means Ohio taxpayers are going to result, are going to have to pay for abortions should this pass. You know, I think these are things we need to, to talk about. And I'm encouraging everybody uh, who's listening, attend the Ohio March for Life. Uh, it's October 5th. I think we're going to take the back. It's Friday, October 6th. I just think a strong turnout there uh, would be very welcome. Uh, even if you're out of state, uh, just showing some support for Ohio pro-lifers, I think will be welcome. Again, marches aren't the be-all and end-all, but having a very strong turnout, I think, would, would certainly help. So those are things that, that come to mind. Looking uh, at the next couple of years, do you think that it's going to be sort of direct democracy initiatives like ballot questions that are going to be the primary tactic of the abortion movement, especially considering the fact that this is where their advantages um, are the most significant, right? Where this is they've, they've got an enormous war chest, uh, as you mentioned, like, you know, the press is quite happy to carry all this sort of garbage disinformation about how pro-life laws cost lives. So do you think this is going to be the primary challenge state by state going forward? 
You know, I, I think so. You know, I think that they do have some opportunity. They think they have some opportunities with direct democracy, you know, that you know, they can do certain things through direct democracy. They can't really do through legislatures. I think they are going to run out of steam. You know, I think that there is going to be just they're going to reach a point where, you know, when they get into the very conservative states, it's just not something going to work. You know, I don't see a direct democracy campaign being successful in a place like Missouri or a direct democracy campaign being successful in a place like, you know, Mississippi. You know, I think the purple states, even the states that are red but still competitive, like Ohio. Yeah, I'm not promising a pro-life victory in Ohio by any stretch of the imagination. It's going to be close. I think either side could win. But I think that, you know, it will be used, but they eventually will kind of run out of steam. I think that, you know, essentially they will start running into states that are very conservative, where pro-life laws do enjoy strong support. And I think they're just going to have to make peace to the fact that there are going to be certain states in the foreseeable future that are going to have legal protections for pre-born children that are strong and resistant to changes in the legislature or direct democracy campaigns. So do you think the, the biggest likelihood over the next decade or so then is that we end up seeing a sort of two Americas uh, emerge where, you know, blue America and red America grow ever apart in terms of protection for preborn children and a, and a wide variety of other policies? Well, yeah, there's always been kind of variety. We have a federalism you know, system of government and that has some benefits to it. And, um, you know, I think that uh, you are going to probably see, you know, a lot of divergence. You know, I don't see New York or California enacting strong pro-life laws, and I don't see uh, Mississippi or Alabama repealing the strong pro-life laws they have in place. You know, that, uh, you know, again, there's always going to be a patchwork of uh, of rules and laws, and you know, we've had that before. I mean, uh, before the Supreme Court legalized same-sex marriage, you know, there were some states that defined marriage between one man, one woman. There are other states that went ahead and legalized same-sex marriage. You know, we've had a range of policies on other issues involving things like drug legalization, uh, we have to this day differences with regard to assisted suicide. You know, we have a federalist assistance of government that, you know, is federalism. States have a lot of latitude to set their own policies. You know, it's not necessarily the, you know, outcome I'd like in all cases. Uh, but at least I do think that pro-lifers, you know, are no longer disenfranchised. You know, we have a chance to go out and make the case to our friends, to our peers, to legislators that, you know, pro-life laws, you know, are good public policy. They protect unborn children. They protect women. And again, I just think that uh, it's not going to be easy, uh, but most of us didn't sign for the pro-life movement because we thought it'd be easy. And we signed up for it because we thought this was the right thing to do. So we certainly were working out for us, uh, but I think there's lots of reasons to be optimistic about the future. What are some of the key abortion activist claims that got debunked in the year following Dobbs? I know you've written about this before, but if you if you consider the number of hyperbolic sort of doom scenarios that were painted by abortion activists in the pages of everywhere from the New York Times to the San Francisco Chronicle, the, the sort of the picture they painted was of women dying in back alleys. Um, and that, you know, you'd have you know, women starving and, and you know, e- even uh, even the New York Times and the Washington Post, for that matter, both of these papers have, have attempted to try and and publish these really, uh, really scary stories post Dobbs about women who had babies they otherwise would have aborted. And these stories are always accompanied by photographs of, you know, a young mom with her kids. And it's sort of painted as a as a, you know, it's too bad these kids are alive sort of thing. But these stories are so ghoulish that even readers are kind of like, all right, this is this is sort of a bit gross. What would you say are some of the, the, the claims that were made prior to the overturn of Roe that the last 14 months have proven definitively have not happened? Well, it's interesting. I know that, you know, uh, 
I'm not sure it was the New York Times or Washington Post, but I know they've done that story on that Texas family uh, where the woman was pregnant, was considering abortion, but, you know, the pro-life laws protected her unborn child, and she carried the pregnancy to term. And, you know, essentially that family's not doing badly. You know, the father has a job or he's a like an Air Force mechanic, you know, has a pretty, I'm sure, solid middle-class income. You know, they're trying to raise the kids. You know, it's not perfect. But, you know, they're managing. You know, this guy kind of did step up. He has a job. He's supporting his wife. He's supporting his family. So, again, I don't think it's this doomsday scenario that either side, uh, you know, likes to, to make out. And I also think it's amusing. They are implicitly saying that, oh, the law actually did succeed, you know, to protect these kids. But because of the law, the abortion didn't happen. So, but as far as just what's been debunked, you know, I think that, uh, you know, the other side has always claimed that there would be, you know, enormous, you know, public health problems. And that just hasn't happened. I mean, they've just come up with some anecdotes some cases where I think doctors and physicians have misinterpreted and misunderstood pro-life laws. I mean, there's nothing that prohibits, you know, any woman in any kind of emergency medical situation from not getting health care. You know, doctors and hospitals are certainly, you know, can treat women, you know, in emergencies, you know, regardless of whether or not she's pregnant. You know, again, they've come up with some anecdotes, but they've not come up with any hard data suggesting that maternal mortality rates have gone up. They've not also come up with any examples of women who died. You know, they've always said that, you know, there will be uh, women dying because of these bans. You know, we've had, you know, pro-life laws in place for over a year. I don't think they can identify one death that's occurred. So, again, they have a few anecdotes that are, you know, tough to read. But I think that these are just misunderstandings, misinterpretations of pro-life laws by medical professionals. You know, I think in reality, um, you know, the public health outcomes we're going to see in the states that have pro-life laws are actually going to be very good. Uh, it's going to take a while for that data to come out. But I think there's reasons for, for optimism. So we talked about what the pro-life movement should be doing defense, uh, defensively to sort of stave off these direct democracy referendums, et cetera. What do you think the pro-life movement should be doing proactively over the next five years or so? You know, I think that there are just opportunities in certain states, you know, which we just haven't taken advantage of just due to kind of political or kind of other just, you know, circumstantial reasons. You know, I think that, uh, you know, a lot of the fairly conservative states have uh, moved forward uh, with strong pro-life laws. You know, I think that... Uh, South Carolina has a heartbeat act. You know, Georgia has a heartbeat act. Possibly those rules could be could be strengthened. You know, you have some states in kind of the uh, the Rocky Mountains, like you know Montana, like Wyoming, uh, where I think the people there might be sympathetic to, to pro life laws. You know, I think we do need to invest in a lot of legal fights. You know, there are some laws that have been in effect that have been struck down or at least delayed by court rulings. You know, Ohio, I think for a while was enforcing heartbeat act. You know, that was uh, I think that's no longer the case through the legal action. So I think that, you know, there's just lots we can be doing to, you know, expand the number of states that are protecting pre-born children. You know, I think we just need to maintain our opposition to the Biden administration. You know, obviously he's probably going to submit yet another budget that does not include the Hyde Amendment. You know, I think our Republican Congress and the senators have done a good job making sure the Hyde Amendment is included in subsequent budgets. You know, I'm excited about the litigation uh, against the chemical abortion pill. You know, I think clearly uh, that should have never been approved by the FDA in 2000. It was approved under very unique circumstances that are kind of limited to drugs that are life-saving. And in most cases, pregnancy is not life-threatening. So I think Alliance for Defending Freedom has done a good job litigating. They have actually succeeded in putting some safeguards back in place for any chemical abortion pills. But I think there's opportunities at the state level or the federal level. I think the state level, I mean, I think there are some states we can still work on to either strengthen laws or enact new laws. At the federal level, you know, the Biden administration is giving a lot to push back on. Uh, obviously, we need to invest in the 2024 elections. Electing a pro-life president, you know, in 2024 would be a great thing. It would be very beneficial. Uh, certainly, our work is cut out for us. 
Dr. News, thank you so much for taking the time again. No, thanks for having me. Much appreciated. Ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with American political scientist and statistician Dr. Michael New on the future of the pro-life movement in a post-Roe America. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen to our show this week. If you want to listen to past shows or subscribe to get future shows delivered, head over to lifesitenews.com, pick on the podcast tab, and there you'll be able to find our podcast wherever you get your content. Thanks so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week.